Lovely listeners, today is a work day. Now, we all know that talking about anti-bias work is a vital component of the kind of school change that makes our classrooms safer and more engaging for students of color. Doubly so when we are white educators and when we teach in predominantly white spaces in predominantly white communities. But sometimes it feels like all we do is talk and then are sure ourselves that the work is done. It's not. It's really, really not. Real change in dismantling bias in our classrooms can only come about when talk turns to walk. When we are serious about change, we share our own journeys with all their missteps, rocks in the shoes, and joy-filled leaps and bounds. We share and we listen, and only when we see what the work takes can we make the change we want to see in the world. On this episode, we welcome Emma Vestola and Emily Gilmore to the show as they share their own journeys and all the work they take on that they do each day to dismantle bias. And before we go any further, I ask that you take a moment and hold these two Vermont educators in gratitude with me. Now we're gonna be using Liz Kleinrock's Start Here, Start Now, a guide to anti-racist and anti-bias work in your community to guide our conversation And as you listen, I want you to consider, really consider these two questions. One, how can you share your work in this way? And two, what's stopping you? I'm Jeannie Phillips. Welcome to another episode of Vermont Ed Reads, a podcast about books by, for, and with Vermont educators. Let's chat. Thank you so much for joining me, Emily and Emma. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Um, I'll start off. This is Emily Gilmore. Um, I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a cis white former social studies teacher, um, now working for Great Schools Partnership um, as of this year, uh, but was in the classroom for nine years. Um, Living in Winooski, Vermont, the land of the Abenaki, and really excited to be continuing conversations with Jeannie and Emma, starting with Emma, continuing with Jeannie. Thank you, Emily. Um, So my name is Emma Vastola. Uh, I am a a cis white um, female. I am currently teaching a multi-age fifth and sixth grade uh, classroom at a um, K-6, well, actually pre-K-6 school in Mount Holly, Vermont. Um, I am really excited to be here to talk with Jeannie and Emily um, today. Thank you both so much for joining me. As you know, I love to read and I love to expand my to-be-read pile, even though it's practically toppling over now. What's on your bedside table? What are you both reading right now? Emma, why don't you go first? Uh, Okay, so let's see. I, like you, Jeannie, have a toppled, like, big bedside table with lots of books on it. And so I have to say the one at the top is uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer's Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life. Uh, That was one I go back to repeatedly. That's always there. Um, Another one that I have been reading is Adam Grant's Think Again. I might just leave it there because I forget. That's okay. We can edit that part out. Okay. 
Thank you. What are you reading, Emily? Um, I just, well, I have been driving a lot more for work. So I have been shifting to audio books, which normally I mostly listen to podcasts. So I'm super excited and started listening to Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bowie. And it is unbelievable as an audiobook. Oh my goodness, highly recommend. Um, especially I spent time in Sault Ste. Marie um, three, two or three years ago. And so to be able to situate myself on the same land that the story takes place on is really powerful. And Michigan is just my happy place. So it just, it's a beautiful story and I can picture it all, which is even, even better for me. Um, and Emily, then Emily, I loved it so much. I read it twice. <laughs> I stopped, I finished it and then turned back to page one. It's, it's so good. So good. It's so, so good. good. Um, I also read it, Emily, definitely. And on audiobook, it was exceptional. Everyone needs to listen. <laughs> um, and then the other Taylor Jenkins read, I just love, I love Daisy Jones and the Six. I love the Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. And I just started Malibu Rising and knocks it out of the park again. I just, it's one of those books. She is one of those authors that just like can kickstart me into reading a thousand books all at once. Um, I think I've read all of her books like within 24 hours. And so I'm really excited to just dive in again. Well, that just adds a whole author to my list. I'm really excited about that because I haven't read any of those. Thank you. You'll love the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Like love, love. Got it. I, I, I trust you. Thank you both for those recommendations. So this book, um, Start Here, Start Now, A Guide to Anti-Bias and Anti-Racist Work in Your School Community by Liz Kleinrock, starts with acknowledgments. And I, I wanted to start there too. Um, what I, I love about this is that um, Liz writes a lot of acknowledgments and um, she takes time to thank her parents and her colleagues and a host of writers and activists and educators. And I'm gonna read a little bit um, that really touched me when I was reading this. To my ancestors, it has taken me a long time to connect to you and hear your voices. While my life has taken many different turns and some have felt determined by chance, I have no doubt that I am where I'm meant to be, doing what I'm meant to be doing. I recognize the strength I draw coming from a line of ancestors who have been colonized, enslaved, and persecuted across continents for centuries. I would not be here today if not for your strength, resilience, power, and sacrifice. To every student who has come through my classroom door, both in person and virtually in Oakland, Los Angeles, and DC, I love you all so much. I hope you never forget that once you're my student, you're always my student. You are the real change makers, and I cannot wait to see what impact you have on the world. I read that because it's beautiful and because it's true, um, but I also um, just had a conversation with you, Emma, in your classroom about um, 
creating a culture of acknowledgement and giving credit. And I just love how uh, Liz Kleinrock models that here and how it centers her identity, which seems especially important to this book. And I wondered if either of you had any responses um, to the acknowledgement section of the book, to the beginning of this book. Well, for me, I think it really brings up um, the importance of like that thoughtful space to connect um, your past to your present and um, acknowledging that uh, those stories that are in, in those individuals and land um, have impacted you um, and, and, and to give those credit, those credit and to acknowledge those who, uh, who have really helped you grow into the, sen the person that you are. Um, so that, that's what a section that really has meant to me and really has impacted, I think, the way that I've structured um, and thinking about structuring my classroom. I really see the connection to um, what she models through starting her class with identity work and that starting the book with identity work just feels really appropriate. Um, and just already like creates an ease as the reader of knowing who the person is, how they've been influenced. Um, I think it's just really powerful and accessible, like especially as teachers thinking about the impact that we have, that things that have impacted us, but also like the lasting impact that we then have as teachers um, just really feels full circle to me. Thank you both for that. I think I think I'm a librarian by training. And so often um, when we think about giving credit, we think of work cited in bibliography. But I wonder, especially for K to six, if we didn't start with citing sources in that in that sort of APA or MLA format kind of way, but we started just by acknowledging the folks that have influenced us, whether it's as we created a piece of art or did a project or wrote a story? Like, did we have a mentor text? Is there an author we love that we're inspired by? Is there um, a classmate who gave us feedback that we wanna give kudos to? Do we wanna thank our parents or our teachers for inspiring us? And so to me, that's all a part of this um, culture of, of giving credit. And um, I know that for, you all, like me, I think a lot about who I'm citing. I try to cite um, people of color and especially Black women. And I just think that Liz does something really lovely at the beginning of her, beginning of her book by, by um, citing Audre Lorde, right? And her parents and her students. And um, so thank you for indulging me in my little librarian riff there. Um, the book really gets started um, with uh, a focus on how do you even begin if you're new to anti-bias, anti-racist work? And I know that the two of you have been sort of doing this work for a while. So how did you get started? Or what might we learn? What, what resonated from you from Liz Kleinrock's perspective um, that we might share with our listeners? Emily, you wanna go first? Sure. Um, 
So I, this will take me back to where I come from. So I grew up just outside of Chicago. Um, My mom grew up um, in a Jewish household. Her father's very religiously Jewish. Her mother is culturally Jewish. Um, And so she leans more culturally culturally Jewish. Um, My dad was raised very Presbyterian. Um, and so that left a lot of um, obscurity for me in terms of what it meant to grow up with a Jewish identity and like how to, what that means. Um, and growing up in a community that was predominantly Catholic, it was a very stark difference to what um, celebrating holidays looked like for me, um, especially lots of friends in CCD on Wednesdays and going to mass and how that changed our soccer schedules. Um, And so that also left me really vulnerable to being the target of a lot of microaggressions and just explicit anti-Semitism throughout my childhood that um, it took a long time for me to really understand the impact that that had on how I viewed myself and my place in the world. Um, but it did make me really empathetic to people who also identified as other, um, that just ever since I was in preschool, I just always sought out stories of people who didn't fit the norm. Um, and so as a social studies teacher, that just was already ingrained in me of thinking about fair and not fair and I'm oldest child and so I know what fair and not fair felt like um and so that really just exploded when I became when I really found myself in my voice as a teacher thanks for that how about you Emma where did this work begin for you oh it's such a good question um I think for me I uh, was um, born and raised in Southern Vermont. Actually, I work in the uh, school that I went to um, as an elementary school. Um, And I feel like I was always kind of different in the sense, even though it's been, you know, pretty much white, small, rural town. But my father started an organization, a nonprofit called um, Volunteers for Peace, and they did international um, exchanges um, with um, different groups of people throughout the world. So they would bring people together um, for two to three weeks to work on short-term voluntary service projects that were focused on um, anything from um, helping you know, build um, houses for people or working in different kitchens. And each year, starting from the time I was um, two, I think it was 1982, actually, they started, they brought a group of international volunteers to our small town. And so at that time, it was usually seven to 12 people who would come together from different countries all over the world, predominantly from Europe. But um, I just got a sense of um, difference and embracing that. And I love to listen and learn and um, be kind of this observer um, to learn about people. And I think that I embrace that difference and uh, moving into high school um, and even college, I think that bringing groups of people together to talk about kind of 
challenging conversations always kind of drove me. I felt um, comfortable in that uh, and respected. And um, I think that that work has kind of driven me uh, in finding who I am as an educator now. Um, I think that's where it started. What I hear from both of you is this idea of difference as an asset, as a strength. And um, what I really appreciate from Liz is this idea of looking at our students through an asset lens, through an appreciative lens, right? And really seeing their strengths and um, seeing kids for what they are instead of what they aren't. And I know when I started doing identity work, it's so much easier to be, um, to talk about and be in touch with the sides of you that are disadvantaged, right? Or that don't have power, right? Because then we can live into that bootstraps, bootstraps um, the myth of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps mm -hmm. that uh, this country loves. And for me, the work was really being in touch with the parts of myself that hold privilege and power and, and um, whew, wrestling with that a little bit. And so I think that's what I see when I work with um, teachers and adults too, is that that's um, really hard for them, that it's really challenging to notice where you hold power and then to um, hold yourself accountable to that power. And so what I really appreciate about Liz Kleinrock's approach is that she walks us through how to do that. And that leads to a lot of great identity work, um, which I know we at the Tarrant Institute often talk um, to teachers about how to do that work with their students because it helps us know students well, it helps them understand themselves better, it helps build community in the classroom, it helps us cultivate a critical lens on the world and understand difference and how it plays out. And I know that you have both done identity work with your students and I wanted wondered if you would share some examples of what that looks like. Emma, do you want to start by talking about your I Am From poems and the other work you've been doing this year? Sure. And I actually am going to use uh, Start Here, Start Now and Liz's um, work because I, I actually read this book right at the beginning of the school year. And it was such a great um, kind of refresher in focusing on identity. And she actually uses um, some really good examples of I Am From poems or bio poems. Um, and so I... Um, I, we used bio or bio poems or I am from poems to really kind of think um, critically about uh, where they, where, who, who am I and where do I come from? And um, that, that process in itself, I think helps students kind of get, um, think critically about their own identity, but also at the same time through sharing out with, within the community helps them learn from um, each other and helps that build community and respect um, within the context of the community that you're creating, especially at the beginning of the year. Emily, do you wanna talk a little bit about the work you've done at um, in social studies with identity? Yeah, um, so I, ever since my first year teaching, I um, had students write me letters at the beginning of the year. So before we really did any community building, before I really introduced myself, um, I would ask the students to introduce themselves to me before there were any 
judgments or spaces for students to get into the habit of, or to continue the habit of like negative self-talk, especially with high school students that just feels like that's the default in a social studies classroom. It's either, I love social studies, I'm so glad to be here. And then I don't know anything else about them. Um, or they hate social studies and they don't share anything because they feel like there's already this um, negative association. Um, and so that was something that I started really before my real journey with anti-bias, anti-racism work. Um, and as I started to read the responses that students would give, I would give it back to them at the end of the year. Um, and they would really start to, especially like ninth grader, I started with 10th graders. So they were, by the time that they're juniors, they're essentially seniors. <laughs> um, and so the ways that they saw themselves through the lens of their older selves, I started to really see that identity work happening. And then that became an explicit unit of study um, at South Burlington with the ninth graders um, was having them look at their identity, looking at culture and the different ways that it shows up and pivotal events and how they've shaped their lives. Those three things together um, to start every year with those pieces, the students were so, and part of that too was building a, a community of, of protection for each other, um, acknowledging when we caused harm and really focusing on how do we have meaningful conversations. Um, those have to go together, um, especially when we're asking students to share pivotal events and where, where they came from, things that have had an impact on themselves and then sharing it with others if they felt comfortable, um, took a lot of really explicit work. Um, a lot of that having to do with SRI protocols and modifying them for the classroom, like those, those pieces really, there's a lot of pieces together. Um, but by doing that internal work first, we were able to really dive deep into the historical topics that we covered and uh, having that sense of empathy um, was much easier to do rather than the years prior where I was trying to teach empathy um, without those pieces in place. Ooh, I love that so much. And what I'm hearing from both of you is this sense that like, we can't get to who are we and how do we behave together without doing the work around who am I and how am I showing up? And the reciprocity between those two feels really important. I think sometimes we try to jump, like you said, right to the like, who are we and how are we going to behave here without doing any of that um, introspection necessary to know what we're bringing to the space. That feels really important. I also really appreciate that because I think um, so often when we talk about personalized learning, we put the emphasis on the individual, but I actually think the emphasis needs to go on community. And so this is a way of building community by also doing that individual work. I look forward to putting some um, special links in the transcript for folks to go find um, that lead to Emma and Emily's work in the classroom. Thank you both for that. So the other thing that comes up, Emma, did you want to add something? Yeah, I would actually love to add. And I love what Emily was saying um, just about the time, like evolving into, you know, the, the spending the time on who am I 
and then evolving into who are we is so important. I, and I know I went into this, this school year um, thinking about like so much of being a teacher is, is oftentimes kind of fighting like the time, like, okay, I, you know, it, we have to get this done and this done and this done and this done. And I was really mindful going into the school year that no, we're just gonna take our time. They're gonna take the time that they need to really know each other. And I think it was, at least this year, I feel like it was probably around 10 weeks in after doing lots of different identity things around identity, learning about who we are and um, uh, who am I and who we are, that it felt like we could have courageous conversations um, where we were really having these, I think that Liz Kleinrock, she talks about um, pulling in instead of pushing out in terms of having those conversations that are hard. So taking that time to spend on identity, I think is really crucial and it's okay too. Well, I fully agree with you. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Jeannie. No, please, Emily. Um, I was just, I, I really agree with you, Emma. I think that there's, there's this pushback with um, ABAR work in particular that it's it's taking away from content. Um, and I think it's this dual, the duality of, um, I got to know my students way faster and at a much deeper level so that I was able to personalize their learning, understand what they needed to feel successful I knew how to reach out to parents or families, caregivers, special educators. The students were felt comfortable disclosing things that were going on in their personal lives, especially last year when the everything was mayhem of like we the number of conversations we had about like mental health was so much more significant in a time where it felt like people were talking about mental health in this really surface level, like self-care will help you not feel burnout. And it's like, no, no, we're actually talking about like mental health crises right now. And we're working together as a classroom to anchor really complex conversations um, while monitoring our friends, the ways that they're showing up. Um, despite wearing masks where, you know, there's this sense that you see less of a person, but, you know, being able to see each other's eyes and being able to really feel the energy in the room, it just would have been a totally different experience had we not gotten to know each other through identity. Um, yeah, I just, there's just, I can't say enough about how important it is to to actually know and not make assumptions um, because that's something that is so easy to do as teachers because we've seen so many young people in front of us that it's easy to fall into that trap. Oh gosh, I so appreciate the depth that you two are going with this and this idea that um, this difference between thinking we know our students and really knowing our students and allowing them to voice who they are as opposed to us assuming or um, falling into uh, tropes that we carry in our brain because we're seasoned teachers. It also brings up the next issue that Liz addresses in the book, which is this issue of time. 
specifically, how do I do this kind of work, ABAR work? And by ABAR, just for listeners, we're talking about anti-bias, anti-racist work. How do I make time for that while also teaching all the things I, and I'm doing some air quotes here, need to teach, right? Like whether you think of that as covering content or um, staying on course with proficiencies in curriculum, um, how do you also prioritize this kind of work? And so I'd love to hear, you've already let us know that sometimes you have to slow down and really get to know kids in order to do the important work um, that comes ahead and have those relationships that mean you're really being an impactful teacher or help them have those relationships with each other that help the classroom sing. And having just been in Emma's classroom last week, I can say the results of that deep work she did with her students is really paying off and how they show up and, and have and have conversations and relationships with each other. But how else do you deal with that issue of time, with that issue of um, teaching the proficiencies you need to teach and embedding anti-racist, anti-bias work into the curriculum? Emily, do you wanna go first this time? Sure, um, I was just turning to, um, it's page 24 in Start Here, Start Now, um, where Liz Kleinrock provides um, a really beautiful graphic organizer for ways to think really critically about what you have to do and what you get to do. Um, and that's something that, this is actually something I use in my work um, with Great Schools Partnership as working with other schools um, as they think about their, their journey, whether it's with equity work or proficiencies, personalized learning, um, there are ways, and it's not just ways, but like the most fun and accessible ways to uh, utilize, profi- this is disclosure, I love proficiency-based learning. <laughs> Um, that is also how Jeannie and I know each other is through our Roland work. Um, that was my focus um, with my Roland research was using student voice um, with proficiency and personalized learning. And so um, to see this chart that Liz has that, and I'll read the headers. So she talks about um, your, identifying your state standards and how your students will meet that standard. The subject that you teach what do I have to do in order to do what I want to do? How can I tackle this through an ABAR lens? And what and where can I supplement slash substitute? Um, and I think this is such a great, easy model to follow of like, these are the things I have to do, but when you really look at the language of standards, the opportunities are endless for the ways you can reach that standard. Um, And that's something that just made teaching really fun to think about giving those same standards to students um, and really think critically about why we're doing what we're doing um, and how we can get to do the things that we want to do by thinking critically about the systems that are created. Um, In full transparency, we talked about the four eyes of oppression um, pretty early on in my curriculum with students. And so we are always thinking about where is that um, institutionalized oppression and who's deciding what we are learning with that ideological oppression? Where are those ideas coming from? Um, How does that show up in our internalized selves? 
and that how does that um, interaction with each other really show up in the ways that oppression and liberation can be in place. Um, and so I just, if there's one thing in this book, it's this. And then for the STEM teachers who are like, well, she's a social studies teacher, so I'm ignoring her. <laughs> Go to the back of the book on page 129, because there's a whole section for you STEM folks. So one way, this is Emma, um, that thinking about this kind of work through a lens in terms of thinking of be, building a classroom where of trust um, and reflection. I can't, I just actually presented with Jeannie and another amazing colleague of mine, Margaret Dunn, around uh, personalized learning plans. And part of my reflection around that was on reflection and how um, it also ties into um, having students reflect really gets into them, them knowing themselves, but also you knowing them really well. Um, the other piece of that for me too is the beginning of the year, we spend quite a bit of time actually using SRI protocols um, that are kind of rewritten at the level of our, our students or at the so students within um, our community can access kind of thinking about how do we want to feel in our community and um, going through like a negotiation of brainstorming ideas individually and then collectively coming up with some ideas about how we want to feel as a community and then continuing to reflect on those um, feeling words throughout uh, the time that we're spending together. I think bring helps to also bring in at least in you know the elementary setting um, too the ability to think about actions and choices and if they are um, meeting the feelings that we want to feel in the classroom and I think it's helping that social and emotional piece that I think is also really critical to it's not just another thing it's it's all the same. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate that from both of you, this idea that it's not another layer, it's how you do the things you're already doing, and whether that's how you select books and articles and topics to focus in on, um, and or the perspectives you bring to those things um, is really important to, to the conversation that kids are having in your classroom and the critical lens that they're building up over time so that they can begin to identify racism and bias and then do something about it. So thank you both for that. Um, Emma, you've already alluded to the fact that if you're going to do this kind of work, you're also going to have to have difficult conversations in the classroom. And um, there's a nice chapter in here about how to do that, how to hold space for hard conversations. And I wonder what's worked for the two of you when things get prickly, uh, when, when you're asking kids to think about um, in ways that maybe are uncomfortable or when you have differences of opinion in the classroom. Um, well, I think that, uh... I'm gonna circle us back to making sure that there's that safe caring community by doing like starting with who am I, who are we and that identity work, um, I think creates that safe space to be able to call in um, 
when having conversations uh, about, I think even like in the elementary school setting, we're really talking, in the, I, I would say in any setting, any educational setting, where we're having tough conversations, the ability to do that is because there is this um, feeling of safety to be able to take risks and to be vulnerable, to ask questions and to share kind of vulnerabilities around certain topics um, because there's a safe, it's a safe space for people to do that and for students to do that. Um, How would you build on that, Emily? Yeah, I think there's, so part of that, part of what I'm thinking about is um, how power shows up in the classroom. And that was something that I was always pretty explicit about. Like I, I called myself a benevolent uh, monarch um, that I have been selected to be here. Uh, It was your destiny to be in this classroom. I have all of the power, but I can choose to be kind. Um, and so I, I never wanted students to feel like I am giving them this false sense of reality of having um, a say in the classroom, um, because ultimately that's, that's just not true. Legally, <laughs> I am responsible for them. Um, and so that was always something that I um, leveraged to really think intentionally about the conversations that we were having in class. Like what are the things that we're explicitly saying out loud and what are the things that we're saying to one another and what are the things that we're writing down and processing? Um, I, I think about the nuances between like a safe space and a brave space. Um, and, and ultimately it's, it's, (laughs) it's none of those in a classroom because we just, you, you, I don't have, I cannot control the brains of others. Um, And so acknowledging that was really important for me and the students um, first and foremost. Um, And so part of it, I think was when we're really, so there was, um, we had a unit on the history of race, racism and oppression. Um, That was a lot of journaling um, because I didn't want my particularly white students verbally processing what it must be like to have a marginalized identity when there are students who have marginalized identities sitting next to them being like, cool, this is a space for you. Um, But really to make it complex to think about what are the actions that we're taking? Like, yes, we're reflecting, but what is, we all have power because I am giving you, I am actually giving you power right now What are you going to do with the topic that you're researching or um, how you're choosing to demonstrate your knowledge and understanding that is going to be making the lives of others and yourself better? Um, And so really frame, and that's, I mean, kind of the benefit of the classroom is like, this is a place that's not out in the real world where there's more limitations to what you can say or do, but this is a place where if you want to write your legislator, let's do it. If you want to, you know, go talk to the principal about something you want to see changed, let's do it. Um, If you want to just read and process, that's really important. Um, And so that being able to think about 
the avenues to take. So especially when something um, hard and problematic comes up, it's not a surprise, but there's also next steps to take. Um, and I think what Liz talks about that I wish I had leveraged um, was bringing her families, her, her community in with her. Um, and that's not something that I had even come close to doing um, as a classroom teacher, but it's something I'm thinking about now in my role. I just feel like I'm in the presence of such genius between Liz and her words on the page and the two of you. Like I'm just learning so much and also just really appreciate Emily, how you, um, how you frame that as you are the benevolent monarch. Like you have power and you have power to do what Emma's talking about, which is set agreements with your students so that, 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 the culture can hold such things. And then also to make space for people to process this new learning in ways that are appropriate for themselves and for the other people in the classroom. I just really appreciate that so much. Thank you both so much for that. And this leads to my next question, right? Because we are in the midst of a white lash right now. I'm just going to call it what it is. We're in the midst of a white lash against critical race theory and all things equity and inclusion. Um, we hear about it on the news. It's all over social media. People are showing up at school boards. People not in the area, not from the community are showing up at school boards. And, um, and so that's all of the work that Liz is talking about. The anti-bias, anti-racist work is um, getting a lot of pushback um, in our racist society. And so I guess I'm, I'm my question for you, and it's not brand new. This has been ongoing. Um, Emily, you taught at South Burlington as they were changing the name of their mascot and, there were, and flying the Black Lives Matter flag. And so there's been a lot of pushback in the past. So how do you approach this kind of work in that climate? How do you keep care, parents and caregivers informed and deal with criticism and um, still continue to do the work and not just give up? Uh, I'll just start by saying that um, it's really hard. Um, it is, it would be a bold based lie to say I had any kind of answer. Um, I profusely sweat through my clothes when I teach the history of race, racism and oppression to my students for fear of pitchforks. Um, I've gotten Heil Hitlers in class when I've said that I'm Jewish, you know, like there are clear responses that have happened and will happen, um, unfortunately. And it's, it's really complicated. Um, but I think what is really important is making sure that, um, we're constantly learning. I think, especially, um, as a white woman, there's, so much to learn and unlearn. Um, something that I always, I always feel like prevented me from pushing my curriculum forward more was that fear of backlash and not being able to say the right thing about why what I'm teaching is important. Um, and that is harming students. I know I caused harm to students. That is something that I continue to process and work through because I hold a lot of implicit bias. I hold a lot of unconscious bias. Like there's a lot of 
problematic things with me. <laughs> um, I am a white woman. I am, I hold racist ideals. I have to work through those and make sure that I'm not continuously causing harm. Um, and I think that's one of the hardest parts um, is acknowledging that first um, to then just hold that as a line of like, well, I can't, I can't continue that same pattern. I need to make changes, um, which can be hard, but it's important to your students. And that's what always kept me centered. Before we move on and hear from Emma, could you just talk a little bit about the bar we work that you do as a part of that process of, of um, processing your own um, bias and assumptions? Yeah, so um, Christy Nold, who's a fellow educator at South Burlington and just wonderful human, um, and Jennifer Belisle, who is also a wonderful human, also in South Burlington, um, we, um, and Rachel Barone, she was also a part of it too. <laughs> um, we, Christy really spearheaded the initiative uh, June of 2020, I think she reached out to us and um, introduced the idea of creating a BARWE, which is building anti-racist white educators, um, creating our own um, branch of the organization that's based in Philadelphia. Um, the website is barwe215.org. Um, and creating a space for white educators to come together monthly to discuss um, topics that are coming up for us. Um, it became a really powerful space for responding to uh, racialized incidents in South Burlington, thinking about how we can be co-conspirators together, um, looking at student achievement data and the impacts of racism and how that's shown up in the students who are leaving our schools. Um, it's a, it was, has been and is continuing um, at South Burlington. Um, and there's been a lot of schools that have started their own um, across Vermont. And it's just a really powerful organization that is just for white identifying educators to be messy and learn together without causing harm to our colleagues of color. Thank you for that. Now I'd, I'd really like to invite Emma in because I know she has things to add too. Yeah, I would love to. And I was really connecting to what you were saying, Emily, with um, the work of acknowledging yourself and your own biases within the context of um, your classroom and as an educator uh, is really critical. And it's hard. It's hard work. And it takes... I think a lot of space to reflect and to generously listen, not just um, to yourself, um, but also to, to others in order to do this work. Um, and Jeannie, you were saying, um, you know, when there, there's, a, there's conflict and disagreement, um, for me, I feel like it really, I, I try to seek to listen and 
um, engage in a conversation around how to advance this work. Um, I, I think it really starts with you. And I think that's one of the big, the big things for me and the big takeaways. And this is really hard work and it really starts um, with individuals uh, and making space and time to, as like Emily, you said, through learning from others and reflecting um, on who you are, uh, helps the practice grow. You know, I um, work with schools and school districts around change, school change. And one of the recommendations I have for people is to get to know your district policies. And so, for example, Kingdom East School District has a really excellent equity policy. And I think that can be really leveraged if you get pushback about this work, right? Like you can look at your school and district's equity policy and use that to, um, defend yourself against critique, knowing that you're doing the right thing. And so I think it's really important for teachers to know who has their back and to make sure that policy has your back. And it's really easy, having been a librarian, it's really easy for districts to ignore their own policy sometimes. So like if somebody pushes back on a book in the collection, it can be a knee-jerk reaction for administrators just to want to remove the book. To, to get rid of the conflict. But we have to remember that conflict is a really good thing too, right? That when, when conflict is happening, it means we're doing something. It means we're shifting ideas. It means we're doing the work if people are pushing back a little bit. And that that pushback can be a really good thing, but also be familiar enough with your policies to know that you can go to the school board or you can go to your administrator, or your superintendent and say, the policy says this. Um, the policy supports what I'm doing in my classroom. So I, I just say that because I think it's really important to know um, when you're supported and, and that policy has implications and we should be pushing for equity and inclusion policies. Thank you both for your thoughtful responses. Um, one of the most, the sections of this book I really appreciate, living in Vermont and having, pushing racial equity work in Vermont, I hear over and over again from educators well, my school's mostly white, so we don't need to deal with that. And I'm like, ah, if your school's mostly white, you especially need to have conversations about race and racism, because um, that's where it's most invisible. And, um, and so I really appreciate chapter six. What does ABAR look like if all or most of my students are white? And I wondered if you two could share your own um, understandings of why it's important to do anti-bias, anti-racist work with white students and what that might look like? Um, I think for me, with at least with uh, um, predominantly white school, uh, where I've taught most of my career, is um, I think it starts with the diversity, acknowledging diversity and different perspectives and where we see diversity, even though you may be white, it's like that idea of the mask, identity mask, like what you see on the outside um, versus what you see on the inside and having conversations um, about that, those aspects of identity, um, but also engaging in conversations and learning around how this has come up in the past um, for marginalized uh, communities and people who have been marginalized um, to help uh, the white students 
understand the context of what's happening today and their place in the world in a, in a safe, in a safe space. Yeah, I really, I think what I ended up finding most helpful was thinking about it through like a deficit mindset of like, if we're only, if we're in the mindset that we're only teaching white students, then that's definitely not true. Um, and that also means that the lens that we're looking at our curriculum is going to be through this whiteness lens. And so whose voices are not represented, whose bodies are not represented, whose contributions to the world are not represented um, when we're not thinking beyond how we show up every day um, and not critically evaluating what we've been taught. Um, because that's what, I, that's what I feel like is most accessible to, to teachers in particular of like, well, why do you teach what you teach? And generally there's a response. Um, and it's either, well, I've always done it this way or I had a really bad experience in school. And so I wanna make things better. Like generally I find teachers fall into one of two categories. They loved school and so they're back in it or they hated school and they wanna make it better. Um, and both of those conversations lead to a critique of, well, how did you learn what you learned? Um, and when we think about, well, what's, especially histories, I always feel like it's a really good access point of like, what's the last history that you actually learned in school? And usually it's like the 1970s. And when I taught chronological history, I never taught past the 1970s. It was impossible to go from Mesopotamia to <laughs> modern day, what happened yesterday. Um, and so to offer that as an entry point of like, well, have significant things happened since 1970 to today? Um, and just thinking about like, well, you know, how are we really thinking about who is in our curriculum? And that's what I found most interesting in conversations with science teachers in particular of like, well, okay, so what type of science are you, do you talk about the scientists and where those ideas came from? And, you know, that's a part of science is who's creating it and where did those ideas come from? And if you're not talking about, you know, the Ming empire and what was happening in China, or you're not talking about the Muslim creations of math and science, like we're, there's just so many pieces that um, are missing. And I think it goes back to that acknowledgement piece of if we're not authentically teaching, like we're just wrong if we're not <laughs> including those perspectives. Um, it's just wrong. It's, it's an inaccurate depiction of science. Um, they're hard entry points, but it's that self-reflection piece that can be so helpful when thinking about how whiteness is showing up. One thing that I was thinking about, Emily, through what you were saying was, um, the power or the danger of like the single story. And I think that's something that uh, Liz Kleinlock brings up on page 101. She actually uses some um, really great charts that she, she uses with her young, with some younger students. Um, just thinking about certain topics and using like a single story and the meaning that they can make. Like something that I did recently with my students is they looked at um, a uh, image of the first Thanksgiving and 
just reading that image through a critical lens and then questioning, well, is that, are you, is that an assumption or is that something that you see? And so being able to differentiate between those two things um, was really powerful. Uh, and I think it's hitting on kind of what she suggests in the book to really um, get at like what that looks like teaching white students um, in schools with, with predominantly white students. Absolutely. That reminds me of um, something I used to do in class around this time was um, we would watch uh, what the Mayflower episode of Charlie Brown. Um, and I would first ask like, okay, so who's seen Charlie Brown? Who knows who Charlie Brown is? Um, and then we'll watch the episode and be like, so what is the message that we just learned about Thanksgiving? And, and students will have all these um, ideas. I'm like, what are some things that you thought were weird? Like you're teenagers. You definitely thought that this cartoon was weird. What were some things that you thought were weird? And then we'll start to unpack those. And then by using primary sources, um, Learning for Justice has some pretty incredible primary sources to help um, facilitate conversations around Thanksgiving um, for all age levels. Um, and so we would use those to talk about. Um, so here are some indigenous First Nation perspectives on what Thanksgiving means to them. And now what might they observe when watching Charlie Brown? What might this actually mean to them? And they're like, oh no, did you just ruin the Christmas episode too? And I was like, as a Jew, I sure did. I sure did. <laughs> so we would have those like really meaningful conversations of, like perspective matters. And if we're not thinking about those different perspectives and who's being represented and how, what does that mean the next time that you're just cruising through Netflix? Like, what are you going to be looking for in the characters that are represented and the movies that you're watching? Um, and that just continues to grow. You're both bringing me back to one of the scholars I cite most often, and that's Rudine Sims Bishop and her ideas of windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors, which she wrote about literature, right? And she said, we all need um, mirrors, ways to see ourselves in literature, but the same could be said about uh, science, math, social studies, right? Like we, we need um, to see ourselves represented in the field. We also need windows. We need views of other people represented in those ways in our literature, in our social studies, in our science, in our math. And um, for white folks, especially, we get a lot of mirrors. White students get a lot of mirrors into the world. They need windows and sliding glass doors to understand how other people experience the world in order to be balanced humans. And I'm hearing that from both of you. Thank you for that. So Emma, I have a question that's really specifically for you because you have taught first and second grade and now you're teaching fifth and sixth. And um, Klein, this book really is meant for um, sort of early, middle and elementary school is where it's, it's um, Liz Kleinrock's really writing for teachers of those grades. And so she specifically has a chapter on what does ABAR, anti-bias, anti-racist work look like with younger students. And I, I wondered if you had any um, perspectives on this as somebody who's taught down to first grade. Yeah. Oh, I don't like the way I just said that. I just want to say, I think kindergarten and first grade teachers are amazing and say, I just want to rephrase that and say, as someone who has taught amazing first and second grade students. They are amazing. 
they are just, they teach you just so much. I feel like those younger students and they don't like it when I call them younger either. So <laughs> I might switch that into first and second graders, but um, I think that it really goes back to looping back to some of the conversations that we've had around getting to know your students well. I think oftentimes as educators of primary students, we have this like um, idea that they can't engage in difficult conversations because they're young. Um, and I would argue that I don't think that's necessarily the case. And when we're, we're, we're protecting them in that way, what is that story telling them and how does that impact the choices as they get older? So what I've found um, is it's really about the process in which you have the conversation with them around certain topics. So choosing essential questions that really engage them in the topic. Um, they do have a lot to say um, around it. And I think you can do it in a way that's um, engaging um, and um, sensitive at the same time uh, because they are, they, they do want to talk about it and not to have, offer them spaces to do that uh, is, is uh, I think, challenges our educational system. They're uh, first and second graders. I've taught K to six um, before I moved up to a seven to 12 school. And um, I love first and second graders. They're so earnest and they're so full of kindness and love. And I think actually um, we miss a prime opportunity to engage them in the work of being fully human if we don't have them have these conversations about difference and um, especially with an appreciative lens. So I'm grateful for your answer, Emma. I, um, one of the things about equity work and anti-bias, anti-racist work for me is it keeps me on my growth edge. It keeps me always learning because I never fully arrive, um, which I think can feel exhausting, but I actually love it, right? It keeps me on this journey to learning more and more about myself, about the world, about how to do a better job of it. And I wonder what your learning edges are right now. The two of you who've been doing this work in different ways, wh where's your growth point right now? You want to oh, get us everywhere. started, Emily? Everywhere. Yeah, literally everywhere. <laughs> I think it's the same thing. Just literally everywhere. Um, they're so, I mean, especially um, just with the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, and yeah, I don't even have words to process that right now, but there's just so much that feels the way that I respond. I know that there's, that's a lens of privilege and that's a lens of whiteness. Um, and just and to proximity. be clear, you're talking about the verdict, the Kyle Thank Rittenhouse you. verdict that just came out. And so you're saying your response to that is one of privilege. Cause I imagine like me, you responded with like, what the heck, how is yes. this the verdict? And yet, yeah. Okay. A few more expletives, but yes. Um, just really thinking about also the, the privilege of not having to acknowledge that as a classroom teacher. Um, I am in this space that I'm in right now, my office and my house feeling very protected 
Um, and working through that, that feeling of, I don't have to go into a classroom tomorrow and explain to students what just happened. And um, that's also a way that kept me growing was knowing um, that I was being held accountable by teenagers who look to me for an explanation and a lens to look at the world. Um, I think about how little I really understand about the land I live on um, and just the ways that the Abnaki have been treated and just, I, there's so much, just so much um, that every day I am breathing through like a stretch. Um, Lizzo's been working on her split and <laughs> I feel like that's where I am. It's like, how can I breathe through to stretch? Um, very motivational videos. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. I've also been trying to do some learning about the Abenaki and um, the land that I'm on. So I'm really grateful for that. How about you, Emma? Where are your growth edges right now? Um, I think it's hard to really zone in on one edge, but I guess what's really coming up for me as not only a classroom teacher, but a leader in our district too, is thinking about, um, I think this is less so maybe in middle and high school, but in elementary schools, we use programs quite a bit. And um, I'm really trying to think about programs <clears throat> critically through an ABAR lens of how, who are they serving? What students are they serving? And who, is, who are they written for? Um, and using them critically through looking at, through a lens to, um, and also just to, to, as a leader, just pick and choose which ones are, you know, who, who are they written for and are they gonna serve students and are they always gonna serve all students is um, a, the question. Um, and I think that my learning edge also, so this is actually the first year I've, I've taught middle school in quite some time or fifth and sixth graders is um, when I'm all like making sure that I'm designing experiences that bring in um, marginalized, like bring in the voices of marginalized communities, whether or not it's choosing books that are written by women or American Indians or, um, perspectives. Uh, and I, I know that I'm making mistakes all the time, but at least I'm trying to, you know, push myself to um, learn about how I can make, you know, more like spaces that are like healing spaces where people's voices are uh, acknowledged and people can lean into vulnerability in order to learn more about themselves and about each other. I really appreciate that, that notion of healing spaces. And I really appreciate the way that brings us around to this idea that anti-racist, anti-bias work is healing work, the work of healing ourselves and healing our communities and, um, and healing, helping our students learn to heal themselves and their communities. So thank you, 
both so much for this really nurturing conversation about doing this work together. Um, thank you so much for talking with me about Start Here, Start Now. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Emma Vestola and Emily Gilmore for appearing on the show and talking with me about Start Here, Start Now, a guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in your school community. If you're looking for a copy of Start Here, Start Now, check your local library. Thanks to Audrey Holman, audio engineer, and so much more. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.terraninstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Terran Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.